Let's uh, take take a moment to pray. We're, we're in Psalm 6, if you want to flip there. At the start of the year, we did Psalm 1 to 5 in January, first week of, and the first week of Feb. Uh, they're online if you want to go back and listen to them. I'll give you a bit of an introduction to the Psalms. We're just going to keep using the Psalms in between books of the Bible to to fill in a bit of time and, and to have a break from the big, long slogan uh, in, a, in a book. So let me pray and then we'll read Psalm 6 and unpack it. Rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. 
Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am languishing. Heal me, O Lord, my bones are troubled. My soul also is greatly troubled. But you, O Lord, how long? Turn, O Lord, deliver my life. Save me for the sake of your steadfast love. For in death there is no remembrance of you. In Sheol, who will give you praise? I am weary with my moaning. Every night I flood my bed with tears. I drench my couch with weeping. My eyes waste away of grief. It grows weak because of all my foes. Depart from me, all you workers of evil, for the Lord has heard the sound of my weeping. The Lord has heard my plea. The Lord accepts my prayer. All my enemies shall be ashamed and greatly troubled. They shall turn back and be put to shame in a moment. What an incredible psalm to read and meditate on together. And we must remember, and I'll just give us a quick recap of, not a recap of all the psalms, because they're individual, but a, book, a recap of the book of the psalms. It is the most read book in the Bible, maybe because it's the biggest, and if you open a Bible, you're likely to land in psalms if you open it towards the middle. Maybe because it speaks to real things, real things we are experiencing in our thoughts and feelings. When we read it, we can relate to the writer, and we can feel, yes, I get this, I've been in that place before, I've been in joy like that, or I've been in suffering like that. I know what it's like to have people hurt me, I know what it's like to have a suffering of uh, sickness or uh, mental illness, and we can see all that in the book of Psalms. So the reason that may be the most popular book or the favourite book for people is because it relates to us. We get it. And it helps us understand what's going on inside of our own thoughts and emotions. But another reason that the psalm that maybe we haven't thought about is so helpful is that it helps us minister, minister or teach ourselves about the truth of God's Word. Our thoughts and our emotions or our thoughts and feelings can't be trusted. And there's a great heresy out there that sort of defined, that has said that if we just listen to our thoughts or trust our feelings, that's the Holy Spirit leading us. That's not entirely true. From what the Bible says, our heart is a relentless evil. Who can understand it? So we need to not listen to our thoughts and feelings, but rather teach them, correct them. It's why we believe the doctrine, which is just our set of belief, what we believe about God, what we believe about ourselves, what we believe about Christ, doctrine is so important. It's not just for the educated, for the one who's been to Bible college, or the pastor, or the elders, it's for every single Christian. And in the midst of the Psalms, we see David, most commonly, but other writers as well, writing about what they think and what they feel but on top of that, speaking doctrine over the top of it. And we're going to unpack this in this way. We're going to look at his feelings and emotions, and we're going to see what he believes about God and how they correct his feelings and emotions, or how they direct his feelings and emotions. 
But what's also important to note is that the Psalms are inspired by God. All Scripture is God-breathed and useful for correcting and encouraging. That's That's what the Bible says about itself. The Psalms are from God to us so that we can give back to God. How gracious is God that He has shown us a way to relate to Him. Here is how you can relate to me in suffering. Here is how you can relate to me in joy. Here is how you can process the agony of a sinful flesh, or a sinful mind, or sinful emotions. He is so gracious that He, through the Holy Spirit, allowed people to suffer in this world and gave them words so in the midst of their suffering, or the midst of their celebration, they knew how to respond to God. And now we have it today. The one we have no words to say, no way of putting it into language anymore, that we are beyond understanding how to talk, talk to God, we can turn to the Psalms and find something there that may speak for us and God approve it. Because it's His words. His words to us that we can give back to Him. Incredible that God is so gracious that He also gave us words to pray and worship to Him. Let's unpack this in a few verses at a time. And of course, as we look at the Psalms, it can be quite hard to do verse by verse because it's quite poetic. Some of them are poems, songs, or, or, or prayers. And some of the lines just repeat themselves to sort of add layer and add depth. The Hebrew te- technique was to repeat phrases or repeat, repeat it in a similar way to make sure we knew that, or to get the, the point across. It's like putting it in uh, bold or capital letters. So we'll try our best to unpack uh, as much as we can without taking too long. Verse 1, O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am languishing. Heal me, O Lord, for my bones are troubled. I think it's obvious here that the first uh, or the type of psalm that we are at is either a song of repentance or a prayer of repentance. David is acknowledging, oh, sorry I should state that this is a psalm of David, we see that at the start in the uh, italics at the top, if you've got your Bible open you'll see that. This is a, a psalm of David, so David is acknowledging that he needs review, that he needs discipline. And he knows something about God here. He knows that God is worthy of anger. God is worthy of discipline. God is worthy of judging him. So straight off the, 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 the get-go, we see this is something in David that he needs to repent of, that something is grieving him to the core, a, a sin of the heart, maybe. You know, it's often that we can see our actions play out in front of people when we hurt someone physically, or we steal something, or whatever our outward action sin is, they're obvious ones. They stand out to people. You might be quick to get a rebuke when you uh, sin out of your actions. But the sin in our heart, the ones that linger there day in and day out, those feelings of covetousness and lust, those feelings of envy and hatred, unrighteous anger, those, they linger long in our life. 
hard to see. They don't always come out in an action. And people don't always, aren't always aware to rebuke us. So when we look at this psalm, it would seem that David is meditating on thinking about an inward heart sin. Something that's at the roots of his, of his sinful nature. And he's trying to find a way to talk to God, to repent about it. Yet he's coming to a place of going, God, you are just, you are holy, and I am worthy of your anger, I am worthy of your discipline. Now there's a phrase in Scripture, or two phrases in Scripture, that I think would really help us understand those phrases, but understand what's going on in David's heart. Now those two uh, phrases are from, one's from the Proverbs, and it says, the beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. We've all heard that. The beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. And the other is from the Sermon on the Mount. And it says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for they shall inherit the earth. These two psalms are, we get a picture of them. Sorry, these two themes throughout Scripture, we get a picture of them in Psalm 6. They're not easy to understand. When we say the beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord, it's not a simple statement. In fact, the whole book of Proverbs and Ecclesiastes and any wisdom literature, Job, is dedicated to understanding what it means to fear the Lord. And blessed are the poor in spirit. It's not exactly a straightforward statement. So in understanding Psalm 6, we can come to understand these phrases as well. Because what we see in David is a man who fears God, and his poor in spirit. Not always, because he had sin in him, and we know that when he committed the great sin of adultery and murder, at first he was not poor in spirit, and had very little fear of God. But in this moment, in Psalm 6, whatever it was in the stage of his life, which is hard exactly to determine, we know that he had a fear of God by the way he responds. So the fear of God, I think a great summary is letting God be God. To fear God is to say, God, you are mightier than me. You are more powerful than me. You are the creator of all the earth. There is no one higher than you. You rule this world. You be God, not me. So the world is sort of divided, I guess we could say, in the people that say, God, you are God, and you be God. Because there's one, there's a difference between saying he is God and another uh, difference to living that out in submission to his rule. And there's those who say, I'm God, or I'll do what I want. I've got freedom, I get to choose, I get to determine how I live my life. But David here looks at God and he says, What I understand about God is that God, you are holy, you're the creator of all. Therefore, you have the right to judge. In his first verse, turning to God and speaking to God, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. The first acknowledgement that God, that David makes is, I am a sinner. I am not to rule over my own life, but God rules. The Holy One, the Creator of who I am. So he acknowledges through just this phrase here that God has the right to judge. That God has the right to pour out his anger. Yes, God gets angry. We've been uh, through this and talked about it in Ephesians 4. That God gets angry. 
God gets angry at injustice. God gets angry at our sin. God hates sin. God is the very opposite of sin. Therefore, when a nation like Israel rebels against God and breaks His commandments, He hates it and punishes it. We know that the punishment of Israel was their exile. And they get exiled in the northern kingdom to Syria and the southern kingdom to Babylon. And if you read the book of Ezekiel, the punishment that comes upon that nation is horrific. It is horrific. To David, in his opening line of the psalm, says, God, your judgment is right. You should hate sin. It is against your very nature. You should despise sin. You have the right to pour out your wrath and your anger upon me. But he pleads with God and says, God, rebuke me not in your anger. Discipline me not in your wrath. In other words, don't let the full weight pour out of me, for I will be destroyed. You have the right to, I acknowledge you have the right to, but please do not let it happen, or I'll be destroyed. This is being poor in spirit. Acknowledging our weakness before. Fearing the Lord is saying, God, you are God and you are worthy to judge. And being poor in spirit is saying, I am weak and have no right to stand before God. I have no right to approach Him. I have no right to worship Him because I am utterly desolate in the spiritual realm. So David here demonstrates two great themes of the Bible that any Christian or any believer has to have that they fear God. Acknowledge God to be God, and they are poor in spirit, humbly sit before God and say, I have nothing to approach you with. So David demonstrates that in his first, first verse, and then he comes before God and says, Be gracious to me. So in our repentance, in the repentance of David here, he comes acknowledging God's righteousness and God's holy judgment and how right he is in doing so. But he calls on God's other characteristic, God's other attribute, his graciousness. What is just for God to do is to pour out his full wrath, his full anger upon every sinner, which is every person. Right here, David, whatever sin he was struggling with, pride, last covetousness, whatever it may be in the depth of his heart, idolatry, he deserved to be cut off from the land of the living like a soul. But he appeals to God's grace. And he knows that there's a doctrine about God, there's a belief about God, that God is not only just, but he is merciful and gracious. And he says, O oh Lord, for I am languishing. Heal me, O Lord, my bones are troubled. He recalls that this holy God, this just God, does not excuse evil, but can and will be gracious. Now for us, we know that God's grace comes through Christ. David at this time was anticipating Christ. And often in his Psalms or in his own writings, he says that he's waiting for a greater king than him. A king that will fulfill all of the promises. A king that will rule over Israel, God's people, forever. So David, calling, saying, Be gracious to me, O Lord, calls with an anticipation for when God's grace is shown in Christ. We, when we read, Be gracious to me, O Lord, we read it in light of Christ, saying, God has been gracious to me. God has poured out His wrath and His anger, not on me, but on Jesus. 
to set me free from the punishment of sin. We see that it's so clear that in our prayer life, our repentance life, which is a daily action for a Christian to habitually come to repentance day after day, is to recall God's character. It's to recall that He's holy, that He's worthy to judge, that He could and could and is right in doing so pour out His full wrath on all of us. Yet in the same breath that we recall His holiness, we recall His righteousness. Uh, his graciousness as well. That on the cross, he was both just and gracious. On the cross, he was both just and merciful. In that he poured out his full wrath on sin, but on the Holy One, Jesus, and not on us. David says this line for I am languishing, heal me. O Lord, my bones are troubled. David feels his sin so deeply that it's affecting his whole body. He feels his sin to the point where he is so weak, that word languishing weak, he has nothing. He's saying to God, if you aren't gracious, if you don't send a saviour, if Jesus didn't come, I have nothing. My whole body will give way under the weight of sin. I will tear myself apart because of the darkness of my soul. So the call for God to heal him is the call for God to bring Jesus, the only Saviour, the only Holy One that could wear the punishment in full. Verse 3 turns from this physical or continues to expand, as I said, the Hebrew technique of layering the weights on top of one another to make his point stand out. He says, my bones are in trouble. I feel my sin inwardly, physically in me, but my soul also is greatly troubled. The soul is the problem. Well, the soul is the part we should care most about. The soul will go to be with God. He feels his sin troubled in his physical flesh, but oh, the spiritual part of him. How troubled he is by his sin. And the response is the cry of all the saints, or all those who fear the Lord and are poor in spirit. Oh Lord, how long? If we were to read this, or I think if we were to sing this as a repentant song, we would be singing with passion, and the music would be loud, and as we cry out, Oh Lord, how long? It would cease. And the music would stop, and there would be a deafening silence as we wait for the answer from God. How long, Lord? The cry of the saints is, How long, Lord, until you send Jesus for David? How long until my sin will be dealt with? How long until you'll find a way to pardon me? Or to take my sinful flesh and restore it with a new heart? The heart of flesh. Or for us, how long, Lord, will we endure in this world? How long till we go to that place where we will see your face? How long till Revelation 21 and 22 is fulfilled when your chariot will come? And take us to be with you. The cry of the saint's heart, the one who is in Christ, is, Lord, I am languishing, I am broken, my physical body is giving way out of the way of sin, my soul is in despair, but Lord, 
I know you are coming. Lord, I know you will come. Earnestly, our anxious spirits cry, Oh Lord, how long? This is the great phrase of the Psalms, Oh Lord. The great phrase of the Psalms is so often, Oh Lord. In other words, it's an acknowledgement in two simple words, I don't have the answers. I don't know what the answer is to this situation, to my suffering, to my pain, to the fact that sin runs so deep in my heart. The poor in spirit cry, O Lord. The poor in spirit don't stand there in their righteous good deeds and say, I have done all this, God. They say, oh Lord. We get the picture of the Pharisee and the tax collector who comes to the temple to pray. And Jesus is telling the story. And he says, The Pharisee stands up with his arms open wide and says, God, thank you that I'm not like other men. Thank you that I'm not like this tax collector, that I fast twice a week and I give a tenth of my wage. Jesus said that the tax collector knelt down with his knees on the ground and his face bowed to the ground and he said, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. Jesus asked one of them and it's a way justified. And of course, it was the tax collector. The poor in spirit, the one who fears God, says, Oh Lord, how long? Oh Lord, how long must I deal with this body of flesh? Oh Lord, how long till Christ returns and redeems us to completion? Oh Lord, how long? The simple phrase acknowledges that the only rest is through Christ, the only justice is through Christ, the only hope we have is through Christ, that in our hands we have utterly nothing. Nothing. Simple phrase of great humility. Oh Lord, how long? After a long pause, after the deafening silence of Oh Lord, how long? As we wait with anticipation for God's response, David says, Oh Lord, turn, deliver my life, save me for the sake of your steadfast love. There is a beautiful doctrine in here that we, we must unpack, that we can't brush over, so it's complicated, and I pray that you will, you will grasp it. But it's the passion that God has for God. The passion that God has for God. The passion that God has for His own glory. David says, Save me for the sake of of your steadfast love. There is a great heresy in this world and in churches today that God does all things for the sake of man or humankind, that God saved us for our sake, that he saves us for our benefit. That is utterly not true because the scriptures teach us that God does all things for himself and for his glory. And we may say, well, isn't that selfish? That he would do things for himself, that he would do things to bring glory to his name. It would be idolatry for him to put the emphasis on anyone else. You see, there's higher people than you. So for you to say, everything I do is for me, is idolatry and selfish. 
But for God to say, everything I do is for me and my glory is right and just. There's nothing higher than God. For God to do things for mankind, to do it for their sake and for their glory and for their status would be idolatry, would be for him to blaspheme and say that he's not the greatest in the world. God has nothing higher than him. Therefore, the reason he creates the world, the reason sin enters into the world, the reason he sends Christ to redeem us from sin is so that his name will be seen and displayed is that His glory, His righteousness, His grace, His mercy will be on display. If you read the Old Testament, unpack the, 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 the Scriptures, you will see this phrase, for the sake of His name, or for His name's sake. Right here we see this phrase, for the, save me for the sake of your steadfast love. Sometimes it's attached to a specific attribute of God here, His love, other times His grace, but often for His name's sake, or His name's renown. Why did sin enter into the world? So that we may see the graciousness, the mercy, the love, the pursuit of God. That's why sin entered into the world. Because God's purpose and order for the world is that it would fall apart and be damaged by sin and a rebellious nation, rebellious people would fall from him and he would come and save them and his name would be seen as glorious. God's purpose was always that his name, for his name's sake, would be on display for all the people to see. So David, when he's praying, acknowledges that everything his salvation, his life, his wealth is all for the sake of God's name. Maybe we should turn to one of the most familiar Psalms, Psalm 23, and have a closer read of a couple of verses here. Psalm 23, you may know it, it's one that most people would. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. A famous psalm. But if we go just to a verse before, verse 3, it says, He restores my soul. He leads me in the path of righteousness for His name's sake. Why does God want us to be righteous? Why does God sanctify us and save us in Christ? For His name's sake. For His glory. So that the world may know that He is God. Your salvation here is a picture to the world that He has saved you and a, a picture that says God is good. And we benefit from that. It's always for His name's sake and our good. Of course, God's love for us is still the greatest love that we would ever experience. So to say that God loves His glory most of all, and of course, from Him loving His glory, He loves us as well. And that is the greatest love we could ever have. Because God says, I'll give you myself for my name's sake. So let us not think that man-centered theology or human-centered theology is correct. God doesn't do all things for us. For if he did, that would make him just a genie and our servant. He's not a genie. He's our God, our king, our ruler. And it's for his glory that he has mercy and grace. It's for his glory that he judges. 
and pours out his wrath. David affirms this and continues to push on the glory of God in verse 5. For in death there is no remembrance of you. In Sheol, that's the grave, the place of the dead. Uh, who will give you praise? So David is reminding, or, or like in his prayer, reminding himself, teaching his heart, teaching his thoughts about God's character. And he's saying, God, your character is that you do all things for the sake of your name, for the sake of your glory, and I want to praise you, but in death I cannot praise you. Now we need to remember that in God's righteous judgment, God is glorified. When God upholds his justice, when God upholds his holiness, and punishes the wicked, he is glorified. When he comes back and separates the sheep from the goats, and the sheep go to be with Christ, and the goats go down to hell, he is glorified. So what is David saying here? He's saying that he cannot consciously praise him. In other words, the cemeteries are silent. The bodies in the grave are no longer declaring praise to God with their voices. They've been silenced under the weight and punishment of God. So David says, Lord, for the sake of your name, for the sake of your praise, save me that I will not be silent, that I can still make your name renowned in this world. I can still declare your praises to this world, as we all, as we all should. Verse 6 and 7, I am weary with my mourning, with my moaning, sorry, I am weary with my moaning. Every night I flood my bed with tears, I drench my couch with weeping, my eyes waste away because of grief, it grows weak because of all my foes. There is a universal language. And it's, and it's understood by all as the sound of weeping. Whatever language we speak, whether we're English, Japanese, Chinese, whatever accent we have, groaning and weeping is the same in whatever language it is. And his pain is caused by the fallenness of this world. As he looks around him, as he thinks about his own heart, as he ponders the way to sin, as he waits expectantly for Jesus, the Saviour, he weeps, he grieves, he drenches his bed in tears. David felt the fall so deeply. And as a Christian, one of our first acknowledgements is that we would feel the weight of evil in ourselves and in the world. That we would stop comparing ourselves to other people and think that we're better, but that we would grieve over the evil that is in our own heart. That we would grieve over the wickedness that remains in us. A great quote from Bert, uh, Spurgeon says, A pardoned sinner will hate his sin that costs the Saviour his blood. 
A great discipline for us is that we would build weights on our sin. A danger in our life is that we become friends with our sin. We start to excuse it because maybe our life does look better than other people, or maybe it's only inward. Maybe it's just in our mind or in our heart, and no one is affected by it, no one's hurt by it, so it doesn't really matter. But God sees all things, and God had to pour His wrath on Christ. So at times we need to build weight on our sin again, and remember how much God despises sin, how much God is opposite to sin, how much it cost Christ, so that we would sit and, and meditate for a moment and think about the weights in which Christ bore on the cross. That our sin cost him his life. That our sin put him under the judgment of God and the full wrath and anger of God. Sometimes we need to sit and explore Scripture and say, God, show me how much you hate idolatry. Show me how much you hate adultery. Show me how much you hate lust or anger or, or covetousness. Show me how much you hate these things so that I may hate them as much as you hate them. Another great quote is, the more holy a believer comes, the more they hate the unholiness that remains. But in verse 8, the son switches and changes angle. He's grieved, he's been in pain, he's taught himself, he's reminded himself of the holiness, the righteousness, the justice, the graciousness of God. And now he acts. And all prayers of repentance, all prayers and songs of repentance come with action. They don't cease in the wallowing on the bed. They don't stay in tears of idleness. But they move into acting upon these truths that have been taught us. And he says, depart from me, all you workers of evil, for the Lord has heard the sound of my weeping. David's response is that God's heard my prayers. I've been lifted up out of the place of sorrow. I'm no longer weeping. I'm putting off the sackcloth and the ashes, which was a tradition of mourning. I'm getting up and I'm going to work. I'm going to discipline. I'm going to put things into action. And what he does is he says, depart from me evil. Evil people, evil thoughts, evil actions in my life. Get rid of them. I am going away from this evil. A prayer of repentance without action is really just wallowing. A prayer of repentance should always have a practical element to it. Discipline. I will set barriers in place. I will confess to a brother or sister. I will find ways to remove evil from my midst, to purge evil from among me. I may have to cut off some friends at this point until I've got control over whatever it is in our life. Repentance without action is lazy repentance. And Spurgeon, another quote from him, says, Grace and sin are quarrelsome neighbours. One or the other must go. In other words, to receive God's grace, we must throw out sin. And if we're going to continue in sin, we're throwing out grace. 
One or the other must go. They're quarrelsome neighbours. They don't belong together. So if we are under the grace of God, we're disciplining ourselves to remove sin from our lives. So let our repentance be a daily routine of coming to God and, and ministering to our thoughts and feelings with the truth about who God is. And let it turn into action of discipline and guarding our hearts and our minds and fighting the good fight and overcoming sin. Verse 9, The Lord has heard my plea and the Lord accepts my prayer. Our actions show our understanding that God was heard. We say in the midst of verse seven, uh, 6 and 7, in the midst of tears and moaning, if we stay in that place, do we really know God, the God who gives His Holy Spirit, the God who gives grace and mercy? Have we listened to the teaching that our, 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 our doctrine has given us? He's gracious. Christ has died. I am set free. I'm justified. I have the Holy Spirit who is sanctifying me. Our prayer would lead to a place of acknowledgement of these truths. I believe them. I don't just say them, but I believe them. And it turns into action. An idle prayer life, one that prays and waits and never moves, is one who knows God little. An active prayer life is one that prays and waits and acts. And it's where we see God's power and His graciousness. Verse 10 is a reminder from David that God will judge all ungodliness and wickedness. All my enemies shall be ashamed and greatly troubled. They will turn back and be put to shame in a moment. It's almost a strange spot for us to land. But in the midst of our prayer of repentance, in the midst of coming to God, we should acknowledge that wickedness is all around us. And that we are just as wicked, if it weren't for Christ, just as wicked as the rest of the world. A great reminder and acknowledgement of those who fear God and are poor in spirit is to call and remember that unless people repent and believe in Christ, punishment will come and they will be put to shame. His enemies, whether that be the people of Israel that were rallying against him, whether it be the Philistines that were around Israel for David, they're greatly troubled. They shall turn back and be put to shame. They should be turned back or be put to shame and, and be put to shame in a moment. What we must remember is that God is ready to punish right now. We'll see that in Psalm 7 over the next couple of weeks as we unpack that. But God's wrath is ready. He is ready to pour out His wrath on the nations. He's ready to judge with righteousness this world. And if they do not repent, fear the Lord, let God be Lord, and have humble surrender, humble acknowledgement of our wickedness and our helplessness, we would be among them. Thanks be to God for Jesus Christ. Let this be a reminder to pray for our enemies, or for those who are sinners in our midst, wicked, unrepentant sinners. Pray that God would have mercy on them and bring them into the right ways as, we, as, he, as he has done for us. And let us practice 
and active repentance in prayer and action as we live to uphold the holiness that Christ is planning for us. Let me pray. Jesus' name.